All right. Well, this week on the Rock and Roll Ghost podcast, we've got filmmaker Carlos Gutierrez, whose new film or your de- uh, debut feature is locked in uh, with a with a really cool cast. Uh, Mina Savari, uh, Jeff Fahey. I mean, if you don't know who Jeff Fahey is, I mean, start- it's like leave the building. <laughs> yeah, go to IMDb and start start watching his his stuff. Uh, Costas Mandalore and Bruno Bashir. Um, you know, how are you doing today, Carlos? I, before- I'm doing great, Brett. It's uh, it's been it's been a busy week of uh, promoting the film. You know, the yeah. film went out in theaters and VOD um, last week on Friday, yeah. May seventh. So it's been it's been fun. Great. Well, I you know I watched the film last night, and um, you know you never know when you when you're not aware of someone, you're not you never know what you're gonna you know, you're going to walk into sometimes. And I got to say, you know, it's always nice to have a, a real good surprise and, and, and enjoying a film when you're not sure of, you know, necessarily of somebody's past work, you know what I'm saying? Right. right um, and I really enjoyed your film. I thought it looked spectacular uh, it had a real confidence in how it was filmed. It was, it was actually very tense. I mean, I've seen, you know, I'm sure you had a tight schedule. I'm sure you had a tight budget. Yeah. Um, but it really was done exceptionally well, and I, I think that probably has something to do with all of your previous work in in commercials and stuff. You probably knew how to shoot quickly and and uh, carefully. Um, how do you feel the the making of the film went for you? Uh, Listen, first of all, I appreciate all those comments. I mean, that's great to hear that, you know, you felt all the things that I wanted you to feel, uh, both emotionally and also just in the visuals, because like you said, I've been doing this for quite a while as a commercial and short filmmaker. You know, commercials are great training, I always say, for having... Sorry about that. That's okay. I'll start over. Commercials and and short films are great training for, you know, anything you're going to do in features because, you know, with commercials, you got clients and people looking over your shoulder all the time. And so you have to be very precise and surgeon-like in what your shots are and what you need. So, you know, when I storyboard a film, I over storyboard because I know when push comes to shove, we got, you know, one hour left in the day, sun's falling you got to know which shots are going to be the ones you cannot live without. And that's a big part of it. Right. What yeah. was the uh, schedule like for shooting? It was about uh, 19 days. Yeah. yeah. I've been talking to a lot of this uh, since I've been, uh, I've been interviewing people for a long time, but since I've been doing this p- portion of, um, yeah. I used to have a, a website and all that stuff, but since I've been doing this zoom thing, I've been talking to a lot of people that have done a lot of movies in less than a month. And it's kind of incredible that, you know, you can get what you get in that short of, you know, short of time. Oh, yeah. Um, it's becoming but, the norm. It's becoming yeah. the norm, too, which is, you know, I, I reserve comment if it's good or bad. But, you know, in sense of like it's it puts a huge time crunch on the team. Yeah. And, um, you know, the way you hear about filmmakers that we all admire in the past is, you know, they had oodles of time. You know, they could do right. rehearsals. Uh, they didn't like the way the takes turned out that day. They just go back and shoot it again the next day. And nowadays, I'll tell you, most of my friends who I talk to who are doing films like this or bigger, 
they all tell me the time crunch doesn't change. You just have more days. But the time crunch in terms of how much you have to get accomplished in one day is getting is it's getting aggressive. You know. Yeah. So is the key. Uh, I mean, is one of the biggest keys having uh, a cinematographer whose crew can set up and 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 uh, break break down and move on. Uh, yeah. I look. I mean, technology has been the biggest you know, driving factor here because, you know, film lighting used to take a lot longer mm -hmm. uh, and you have to light more to capture more on camera. Now with these cameras that have complete light sensitivity greater than almost the, the, the human eye, they can basically capture something with almost little to no lighting. So what that does is it speeds up the process of the day to day. Um, but what I try and implore with my cinematographers is always like, listen, we got to pretend like we're shooting on film. You know, there was the old thing about film that when you would hear a film running through the camera, it sounded like an ATM. So, you know, mm. you knew money is getting spent and burnt. So you didn't leave it, you know, just running and running and running. So, you know, it, it, it is something that's changed. And I think that's what we're going to see for the future, unless, you know, yeah. something goes back to film, which I don't see happening. No, no. I mean, there's the, the outliers like Nolan and stuff, but he can afford to. Tarantino, GTA, yeah. yeah, but that's yeah, I don't even know if Spielberg films with film anymore. I think he might occasionally dabble in it, you know, right. for one film, but yeah, I'm sure he's got I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if Scorsese does it either. I mean, you no, know. No, I think Scorsese made a full-blown, like. Yeah, just kind of have to, yeah. Well, you know, his schedules are like 100-day schedules, and he's shooting, what, three-and-a-half-hour movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, that's not a lot of time, let me tell you. Well, I think it also has to do with, you know, do with the fact that, you know, he's his films are in kind of a, you know, you would say P.T. Anderson too, but yeah. are in a in a schedule where they, they cost a lot of money to make, and so anything you can save on probably, but let's, let's get on to the masters. Uh, of course, <laughs> they, of course, they, of get a, they get enough talk. Um, where, where did the concept, because you wrote it, you produced it, and you directed it, where did the concept come to how did you come about with with the idea for the film and and how long did it take you to actually uh go through however many drafts till you got to the shooting script well to answer that last question i think we did approximately somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 drafts and it went through mm -hmm. a lot of versions so the first version was what i called the tony scott version right so i wrote this film as a kind of tony scott homage right like it was this big brawny uh, you know, woman caught in the middle of this incredibly tense uh, heist situation. And the biggest change that we made from that version to the version you see today is that we scaled everything down. So, yeah. you know, there was a, an opening heist that was, you know, on, on par with, you know, any Tony Scott movie, uh, you know, explosion, you know, multiple people shooting at the same time. Uh, and as you see now in the film, it's, it's a very much more realistic, much more grounded uh, kind of heist. And so the reason for that was very simple because I knew I was going to direct it. Once I took off the hat of like just a writer and I said, okay, I want to write and direct this film. Um, things changed. Another big change that we had was that we made uh, Mina's character, Maggie, have a older daughter, teenage daughter versus a six-year-old boy. Originally it was a six-year-old boy she was protecting. Uh, very much I was stealing from, you know, aliens. I love aliens, you know, and, you know, um, Ripley's character of protecting the little girl, you know, and, yeah. and you know, she's this very innocent, almost doesn't talk kind of person. But then a, uh, and this goes for all the writers, you know, sometimes producers give these amazing notes and one of them was, hey, have you guys thought about changing the little boy to an older girl? 
And the reason was you're going to get more out of it. You're going to get more mileage out of that relationship yeah. on camera. And they were right, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you and you, you get her involved, too, in the action. And so just being... Like a six-year-old just hiding in the yeah. corners. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. that, that, actually, that's one of the good things. That's one of the problems I have with kids in movies, especially a movie like this, is that they only serve a purpose of being a thing for people to be terrified if they're going to be okay. Yeah. A rare exception is like aliens or something like there's very rare exceptions where kids aren't just a prop (laughs) prop, or or some kind of emotional state, but with nothing else to do besides. Right. Right. And then it just becomes annoying. Cause like I've seen, I saw a movie recently where some kid was just, you know, just crying the whole time. I just wanted somebody to shut the kid up. Yeah. And then you lose, you lose the audience because the audience wants to care about the main character, but if the main right. character is distracted, now what's happening, the audience is also distracted. Right, so right. I wanted to give Taryn, played by Jasper Polish, uh, right. something to do. I wanted her to have something to do in every scene. She wasn't just gonna be sitting around, you know, wondering what mom was gonna do next. Like she had to make her own choices. Some don't work out, some do. And yeah. so it was, I didn't want to make this incredible badass 16 year old, like as if it was kick ass because that's different style, different genre. Uh, And I wanted to make a girl who was human and flawed and yet didn't have a filter because, you know, 16 year olds haven't been taught to not say certain things. So, you know, we gave her her catchphrase and, you know, I think it works, you know, watching it with an audience, it works. I think the people find it funny, you know, and she's a breath of fresh air in the middle of this kind of tense, you know, goings on. Yeah. I also liked the fact that it was in terms of being grounded. It's like, Everybody was pretty low level. There, it wasn't like, you know, some uh, middle class or you know, whatever upper class mom. It, you know, she's lived her and her daughter living in a in a seedy hotel with very <laughs> seedy characters. Around. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like uh, everything about it is 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 just high stakes just to survive because that's the only thing they're doing. Um, I, I what what kind of prompted you to go for? I guess that angle um, when like oh, the blue collar angle. I you know, I think it was more research. I mean, you know, if the one thing I can tell writers, even if you're writing a genre film, do research because mm. it will at some point percolate and influence you to do what I you know what what the kind of film is you're trying to make. So for me, I wanted I once I, like I said I wanted to make a grounded film that I was going to write and direct. Uh, the more research I did about who ran self-storages who were the employees at self-storages you know the more you realized okay the more urban or the more kind of like desolate these places are these are people that are living hand to mouth uh paycheck to paycheck in some cases doing the motel life like maggie's character i'm sorry just like mina's character in locked in that you know she can barely make ends meet and then you find out there's this you know absent husband situation um and so the feeling that i wanted you to to have as the film built up was that the walls are closing in on her and she has to make this choice for her family and for no other reason. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I think you, you handled well was, um, you know, sometimes, I mean, it's a, it's a movie. So the, the main character, you know, that Mina plays has to, has to kind of keep going, but you know, the, the interesting thing is just how she's able to navigate between the two, um jewel thieves uh that uh jeff and manny perez right is the other correct 
Yeah. Well, I, I had never seen it. Well, if I'd seen him in something I haven't, I don't remember him, but I remember him now, which was really cool. Because um, the cast is uh, a lot of people you've seen in other things, you know. Right. Um, so you know, Jasper, I, I hadn't seen anything, but uh, in fact, I was surprised Jasper ended up being a girl. Um, I've never <laughs> seen a female Jasper before. <laughs> um, but, you know, like both of them have their different ways of handling things. Obviously, you start out at the beginning showing how just absolutely ruthless and, and pointless Jeff Fahey's character is when you. I mean, it's not even a spoiler that the first instance, you know, he shoots, you know, the, a hostage, um, you know, so he has no problem doing anything to anyone as, as it goes on. Right. Show. That, that's an immediate distinction I wanted to have in the first scene is, yeah. you know, the Michael Mann says character is action, right? Yeah. And he's, you know, his movies, who I'm a big fan of, uh, Michael Mann's movies are movies that have, sometimes very little dialogue or unintelligible dialogue because he doesn't care. He really wants you to be focused on what the characters are doing, not so much what they're saying as a plot device. And so just from that first outset, you hear Manny tell him, don't shoot. And then Jeff just does what he wants, Jeff's character. Right. Now. And so it was interesting because talking to both of them, they became buddies over the film because they yeah. really had to hang out. I said, guys, you're guys that you're you're a pair of thieves that have gone to prison together. You met yeah. a long time ago, and you're completely different animals because you got separated at one point in your lives and are now back together pulling these big jobs. Yeah. And I really wanted them to both feel that they were different. So Jeff actually was the one who suggested, "Why don't I pull back on some of my dialogue?" Because I'm kind of at the point where he's so good at selling things. He's like the used car salesman, Manny's character, and yeah. Jeff's character just, you know. He's the executioner. He's the right. uh, hangman, you know? Yeah. Well, it almost felt like Manny's character, like, if you really start thinking about it, probably had a semi-decent upbringing, right. but just went in a wrong direction. And, right. Right. like, I guess I don't have anywhere else to go now that I'm actually <laughs> You know? Yeah. It's like, because he does have, like, some sort of moral sense. Um, yeah, he does. He He has this, and we talked about that, there's a backstory. There's a backstory to, to both, you know, really almost everyone has a backstory except Mel. Mel has a backstory, but it doesn't influence his action. Whereas Manny really has a motive. And we didn't want to add like a third or fourth layer of motive in the film. It just, it would have been too much. You really have, you know, Mina and Jasper and they have their motives. But Manny kept that in his mind while he's working because he's like, dude, I don't want to have to do this if I don't have to. Right. And so a lot of that was Manny's ability to act that out without saying it, right? Right, right. Uh, and that was conversations. I gave each of the actors bios uh, to study and really know and understand. And if they had issues with the bio, they'd come and talk to me and say, hey, I don't know if this makes sense for the way I was thinking of the character. So, but I wanted them to each have a contextualization of where they came from. And that's right. why there's even that little, you know, whether you catch it or not in the film is fine. But that Bruno Bashir, who plays Maggie's boss, who really starts this whole machination of the, the heist right. in the storage unit, you know, him and Manny, you could tell there was this mentor-apprentice relationship that has deteriorated. Yeah. And, you know, is, is caught, for, you know, for one second, you just get a glimpse of it. But the, I like the idea that there, there is a history to these characters. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I got to say, just like, it's interesting that I was just like looking at Bruno... And I'm like, God, why? Why does he look so familiar? And I look through his Chris. I'm like, 
Oh my God, he was on Narcos, and he's Damien's brother. Who and is he was. Dude, with, he had the Damien. best scene in Sicario too. Day of the Soldado. Right. Right. Like that scene with the uh, the hand the uh, deaf. He plays a deaf character and he's doing sign language. Yeah. Show, and it brings like a tear to your eye watching it. And there's no dialogue. Right. And I said, anybody who can do that kind of acting, you know, I'm in. You know. Yeah. I, I love. I, I read. I read somewhere about Bruno that he got a uh, a Mexican MTV Movie Award for best uh, Bashir brother or something like that. I'm like, man, these this family is insane down there. Very talented family. All are actors. All are producers. <laughs> uh, some are theater directors. Like they direct theater in yeah. in, in the chances that they also are acting in it. Yeah. Um, and so the joke was that every year there should be a best Bashir brother because they're everywhere. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Damien obviously is the most well known on the state side, but in Mexico they're like superstars, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're they're well, a really well known family. Yeah, and it's just it was just so mind blowing to remember his character from Narcos. Who he, he yeah, played, he played such a jerk. On, on that. <laughs> he, also was, he also was one of those guys that thought, "Oh, I got it all figured out," and then, "Oh no, I'm trapped." No, he's. I mean, he was perfect for the character. It was when the casting director suggested him. Yeah. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I had to look more into his scenes because I was familiar with his face, but right. I couldn't. You know, I didn't do an immediate recall of his acting in those particular scenes. And when I went back to watch Sicario 2 and I watched Narcos and Absentia, which was on Prime for a few seasons, uh, you know, he has this ability to be shifty, but somehow also endearing, which is such yeah, a yeah. weird quality if you think about it, that, that duality. Yeah. Um, because, you know, at one point he has to be almost father-like to Mina and a friend. Right. And then the next moment be like, listen, I need you to stay the F out of my business. You know? Right, 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 so, right. You know, it's it, it created a lot of fun between him and her, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, how how did casting Jeff uh, Fahey come come along? I mean, we're... that is a great question. I mean, look, I'm a, I've been a fan of Jeff for years. I mean, you know, I remember Body Parts from the '90s. Uh, big fan of that film, um, and you know, I just you know love Jeff's presence, his his amazing presence, and and the funny part was. You know, when the casting director and producers brought him as an option, they were, I think they were wondering if I knew who he was. I said, are you kidding me? Like, Jeff? Yeah, yeah. Perfect. That's perfect. And they were like, do you want to, like, look at it? And I said, no, no, I know exactly who Jeff is. And so then it became the, the, the kind of, like, talking to him over Zoom and things like that. And he was doing a Western. So he had this huge amount of hair and this giant goatee. You know, he looked like a cowboy from the 1800s. Yeah. And uh, and I said, Jeff, would you be willing to cut that? Because I, I hadn't figured out how this character was going to look yet. You know, still processing, okay, it's Jeff. And he goes, man, I can't. got to keep it. And I said, okay, give me a couple of days to think about that and process it. And so I yeah. based his character on Wayne Grove from Heat. Again, being a Michael Mann fan. So if yeah. you look at uh, Wayne Grove's character in Heat and, and Jeff, you'll see a lot of similarities there. Yeah. Uh, so there was, yeah. you know, it's using those things that happen to you. Those are happy accidents. And I think it helped the character. It helped hide Jeff's good looks. You know, it helped him yeah, yeah. really go into that character. So you had to have him, you had to be filming uh, him while he was working on something else. Well, he had just wrapped it and uh, he wanted to make sure, you know, sometimes they have to keep things for a couple of weeks. Right. I get you. I get because you. Because if there's any reshoots or things like that. And so. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, uh, Jeff is a professional man. I got just yeah, yeah. shout out to everybody, including Jeff, who just came with their A game ready to play. And, you know, uh, we talked a lot about the films that he had worked on and his experiences. But, you know, kudos to him because he's, you know, how many actors say, get rid of some of my dialogue. I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm happy to not have dialogue. But you can tell in the quiet scenes, you're so you're you're honed in on him, even though somebody else is talking. Yeah, it's it, you know the interesting thing about his character is that even though he's a complete psycho, he's not stupid. Mm-hmm. He's he's always reading people. He's 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 reading people while Manny's character might be trying to sell people <laughs> instead of actually paying attention to what they <laughs> That's might exactly be. Exactly the point. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, because he doesn't he doesn't not catch anything. I right. Mean, well, occasionally he. He did get. He did screw up. But yeah, yeah. That was in the heat of being angry. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then another, you know, another throwback. Even though I mean, Jeff and 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 he is, he they've been working forever. But Costas Mandalore, who I've been seeing pop up um, recently in things, um, you know, he was very surprising because honestly, when he was around, I when he first started out, there's there was that era of like, well, every film generation has an era of good looking guys that maybe aren't showing off exactly what they have, or maybe they right. need time to get seasoned, you know, what, right. what right. have you. But I remember him from back in mobsters and stuff, of course. And, you know, I mean, between Christian Slater and, and uh, well, Rico was in that. And mm-hmm. you know, like, it was, it was a good looking guys movie. Right. And, and um, you know, so he kind of, I think got a little lost and probably taken in by the fact that he was a good-looking guy and then developed, you know, or sought out, you know, more character parts. But uh, he was very surprising, too, and especially because I didn't expect him to go the way he did either. Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. I Which mean, is Costas a spoiler, was, so that's why I'm... <laughs> he's, Costas was a lot of fun to work with. I got to tell you, he's, he's, he's a ball of energy. He, he likes to improvise. And, and, you know, you hear this all the time. Different actors have different methods. Uh, yeah. Some are completely on book and some just want to like, just let it ride on every take. And I said, look, you can do whatever you want every take as long as it doesn't throw off what we have with the framing and the camera work. Yeah. So for me with, with Costas, what I came up with was, look, let's use that. You are a guy, you have the most difficult role in the film and spoiler alert here, but you know, you're playing a cop who starts off undercover who the audience sees as a regular customer who then turns out to be a cop who then turns out to be a corrupt cop. Yeah. So it was this kind of multi-layered approach. And I said, look, you just got to take every scene for what it is and play it straight, you know, because if you try and indicate or do anything, it's going to F it up. You know, it's not going to work. The audience will catch on to it. So for me, it wasn't like you're not supposed to be suspicious when he shows up and, you know, quote unquote saves the day. But there is a level of like, you have to believe what he's saying, because if you were in Maggie's position, what else would you be able to do? You'd have to try. Right. Right. So that was a big part of the discussion we had. I said, listen, I don't want to put the onus on you, but this is a really difficult part. So he came to play. He was ready to go. And he I think he delivered. Yeah, definitely. How was how was casting overall? How long did the the casting process take? Did you have um, certain people in mind? I'm, I'm not asking you to name names because nobody ever wants to do this. Sure, sure. Um, you know, the casting process you know started with the lead, absolutely, 
and we we went through you know a, a pretty long process i would say where we have people interested and for some reason or another you know things didn't just work out and i think you know when we settled on mina and we had mina selected and she met with me i think we both understood that it was the right choice it was the right fit uh she understood it was my feature film debut but she also understood i had a, a lot of experience and that i was going to trust her i said look i'm not going to make you do 100 takes just for you know fun i'm going to you know i'm going to look very clearly at what i need and i'm going to show you the storyboards and we're going to go through it and i am going to expect you to show up ready to rock because you know she's got 20 years experience working as yeah. an actress and so she brings that level of expertise and really, if you read the script, she is the character. I mean, you read it, it's like, boom, she inhabited that character perfectly. Yeah, yeah, she was really good. And it's, it's with Mina, it's even more interesting, I guess, in my mind going into it, because um, I, I don't, I don't can't say I followed her career as much over, you know, since the beginning with American Pie and uh, American Beauty. Um, you know, and so in, in the back of my head, I'm like, you know, I'm still thinking she's this like teenager, you know, <laughs> and it's just interesting because it's been 20 odd years since those movies came out. You know, it's like she's not a teen. She could easily be, you know, uh, be a mom to a, a 17 year old dog, yeah. you know, which is right. It, right. It's just it, it's just weird how sometimes time messes with your head, you know, while some people like Paul Rudd and Tom Cruise look exactly like they did. 20, 30 years ago, right. some people just, you know, I'm not saying she looks old. I'm just saying she doesn't right. look that kid anymore. Right. It's, I mean, most she was a kid. Age. That's the thing. Yeah, most she people do kid. age, <laughs> you know. She was a kid and, and you know, people are going to have their second uh, career sometimes. And, and yeah, I think yeah. she's now matured into a, uh, a role level that she's still the lead, but where she's kind of taken more seriously for what she can do as right. an actress rather than her looks, you know? Right. Uh, she was cast very specifically when she was younger um, because she had such an interesting look to her. And uh, she still does, you know? It's like when you put the light, uh, you know, two feet in front of her, her it just uh, the camera just absolutely just envelops her. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's always just fascinating, you know, because again, you get into an area where people start out at, you, you know, younger kids or, what have you, and they kind of get typecast for sure. Something, yeah. and they're not allowed. Excuse me, uh, I'm sorry. Allowed to, you know, by whoever. Yeah, by the powers of develop. <laughs> yeah, some people. Some people have long-standing careers where they go from young to old, and some people, you know, get kind of pushed aside, and it just, it's, it's. Um, sometimes it's, it's for no real reason other than you know somebody sees them in a certain way and they can't see them as something else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that um, happens all the time. You see it. You know? Yeah. So when did you film the, make the film? So we filmed uh, December of 2019. We wrapped uh, Christmas Eve, uh, December 24th of 2019. And, you know, two months later, we're in COVID. So, yeah. you know, there was, there was at one point we were looking at the schedule and pushing maybe to February of 2020, which... As you can imagine, <laughs> right. very fortunate we didn't do that uh, because we might have run, you know, head straight into a COVID situation uh, even before it became like the, you know, the lockdown that it became. Yeah. So 
you know, we shot near Philadelphia in a town called Lancaster. And, um, you know, we had a great time filming there. It was it really added a lot of character to the film, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I was I, I thought it was uh, Pennsylvania where you were filming because yeah. I believe there was a plate that, that had Pennsylvania. There's a plate and then there's the cops. Uh, I didn't even notice the cops. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, that was a, that was quite a scene. I I, I really I, I think it, you know, it's not your film is a very good home watching. You know, I mean, it's in theaters. And if it's if it's near you, you know, obviously try to go see it in the theater because that's always the best right. experience. But right. the way people are right now, people are still a little hesitant. So being on home video, uh, wherever Apple or Vudu or what have you. Right. Um, is a great way for people to see it. I, I think it's a it's a fun, well, it's a little dark, but it's still fun right. in terms of get, giving you thrills. I mean, and, and yeah. kind of keeping you on edge. I think it's a it, it's a, a very good. You know, there's a, so many films that are in this area. I think that are not good. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know why I'm saying you know what I'm saying all of a sudden, but I'm not a rapper. No, I, I listen. I study all kinds of films. <laughs> I watch something in the neighborhood five six movies a week yeah and it's it's homework you know because i yeah, gotta yeah. sit there and really analyze what's working in this film and what's not and as you know it's easier to point out what doesn't work in a film than in what's working you know if something's right. a genius piece of work it's it hits you the first time like a ton of bricks and you don't know why it works but the big thing for me is just studying the genre like i yeah. uh, you know the thriller heist uh kind of genre for me suspense you know going all the way back from hitchcock and you know being all the way modern day with Fincher and everyone else in between, um, you know, you just really understanding how they develop suspense, right? And yeah. and what are the tools and how little the story in a way matters as a plot, right? It's more what the characters are doing and why they're doing it. So yeah. that was a big thing for me because I did scale back on the story somewhat because it was much more complicated. Right. Um, before and there were more levels to it and i said okay this is really just this it right. just is about this because i wanted to focus on the acting as much as possible right and, uh, i think you know mina gives a sensational performance just to hold the frame almost in every shot uh except for the end uh the very beginning so i think it's you know kudos to her also that she was willing to kind of like deliver every day day in day out you know in sometimes in 10 degree weather on top of that roof uh, that yeah. serves for the ending. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was a tough shoot in that sense, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I think, I think a lot of times um, economics and time breeds, sometimes will breed the best. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I mean, I think sometimes when you're given an unlimited leash you know, it goes. Uh, well, I'll, I'll just point to an album. Let's say uh, uh, Guns N' Roses' "Chinese Democracy." Right. Sort of thing. When you're you're given untethered, you know, uh, time and money, it becomes something completely insane. Right. Um, you know, uh, a good example of that though is something like Apocalypse Now, where he was given way too much of a leeway. But it still stands, as far as I'm concerned, the most genius film I ever made. I I I, I struggled for years which what what film is my favorite. And I went back that, and forth between, that one won, huh? Yeah, and I went back and forth between The Godfather, which I think is the most perfect film, 
right. to Star Wars, which was the film that inspired me to love films, to like Blade Runner. But I think I, I ended up picking Apocalypse Now because of its its just absolute batshit craziness and the fact that it still means something. It's you know, but. Uh, that's either here nor there. Um, yeah, no, and and it does. I mean, it, there's there's a lot about the visuals. And again, I go back to what we remember is not the plot. You remember what the characters are doing and why they're doing it. Yeah, and yeah. The visuals yeah. are just this amazing cherry on top because you know the visuals. You can watch that movie on mute, and yeah. it's still you can feel the story in every level. I mean, it's you know it's a visual masterpiece. It's a masterpiece in itself. Yeah. Um, but you know, going back to the genres, it's like. Here's an example, you know, Fincher did this movie, Panic Room, right? Yeah. And I studied that movie a lot, and that's a big movie. That's, you know, you know, maybe not so much these days, but it's a $70 million suspense film. Yeah. And the way you look at it is on the paper, you know, where is that, you know, you go, where is that money being spent? Well, what he did is he recreated the inside of a giant townhouse in New York so that he could put the camera wherever he wanted to, to get the shots he wanted to. And so yeah. it just proves that really like these kind of stories, suspense stories, like you said before, don't need a huge budget. It's it's in the way of the storytelling that you need the money. And of course, you know, you get actors like Jodie Foster and uh, Jared Leto and Forrest Whitaker, you know, that that obviously changes the game. But in the yeah. sense of like when you read what the story is, your mind doesn't go, oh, this is a hundred million dollar movie. Right. Know, there's no spaceships. There's no <laughs> three eyes. Uh, you know, there's not some golden orb that they have to go chase. So, you know, that I, I actually love to see that comparison because there's so many levels of the thriller suspense genre. Another one is like 10 Cloverfield, first time filmmaker. That movie blew me away with just the, yeah. the level of suspense in it in one place, in one location. Yeah, so yeah. That was another film that I really, really enjoyed too. That's a that's a good good one. Well, I want to talk a little, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do want to talk about, you've got two other things coming up and one is a documentary about uh cuban refugees correct oh well that that was a documentary already shot it hasn't been distributed yet but it is uh we're looking for a distributor right now but it won a, a festival prize and that was a feature documentary about the peter pan exodus from cuba so little context my parents are both cuban immigrants and you know growing up i heard these stories about the largest exodus in world history, which was these kids, it was 14,000 kids, were basically uh, helped out of their country uh, in Cuba when it was under crisis during the Cuban revolution, and they were basically repatriated to the US. And so it's it's the story about how that happened and then the kind of, uh, you know, the after effects for the kids who then grew up, obviously, to many of them lead incredibly successful lives, but with this trauma of being separated from their parents. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, you have some, you know, the connection to the material, right. having had your parents uh, flee there. Um, do you have family uh, in Cuba still? Yeah, yeah. My father's side of the family is still there, and we're in communication with them pretty often. But, you know, it is, it is like talking to someone in North Korea. The, the communication channels are not very um, open, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you how how are you, how do you feel? I don't I don't Cuban there's there's a large contingent of Cuban Americans that are um a very anti dealing with the Castro well obviously the the, the 
the other Castro brothers. Yeah, the regime, the regime itself, right. But the regime itself, dealing with them at all to opening up, Obama had started the the channels to hopefully getting, you know, something moving there, and then Trump kind of shut it down. Um, where does your, where do you and your family uh, side with, you know, trying to open up those communications more in, in the hopes of maybe getting Cuba to be in a better place where their people, the people have more freedom? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's a, it's a very dicey, very slippery slope to talk about it because it affects people personally and familial wise. It's, you know, you're, you know, we've torn families apart. My family was torn apart, um, both on both sides of my parents' side. And, you know, the way we look at it now, looking forward, a new generation wants to normalize things. Uh, we want to see normalization. We want to go see where our relatives came from. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine Italian immigrants not being able to go to Italy to see where their parents came from because right. the says they're not welcome. Um, so in that sense, we want as much of Cuba to be open, both artistically, culturally, uh, economically as possible to allow them, the Cubans who live on the island, to be free, 100%. Up until recently, there was no such thing as Wi-Fi in the island. I mean, it was like basically restricted to tourist hotels and Wi-Fi bars. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's been a big change. Uh, Additionally, I would say, you know, if the human rights situation in Cuba improves, there's definitely complete room for us to Completely normalized situation there, but yeah. as you know, it's a, it's at a standstill right now because of that. Uh, that is the pretty much one of the number one reasons why the two countries cannot come to an accord, and um, it's unfortunate. Really. It, it is because it's it's um, there. There's so much that people um, can learn. Uh, down there, number one, but it, 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 just opening it up. I think I think, as we saw, was a country like Vietnam when they kind of opened up. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though they're still, you know, they're still a a communist country, but right. they they work on this weird system where they have, you know, I one of my favorite people was Anthony Bourdain, and he went to Cuba. In fact, but he the great episode, yeah, yeah, he charted the 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 change in Vietnam from when he first started doing TV to the last time he went there. And Vietnam has got, you know, like uh, Saigon or whatever it's called now, um, has got a whole, you know, capitalist kind of ideal, despite being still communist. Right. And there has been more opportunities. Well, you know, the country has stayed a lot the same. There's been more opportunities for them. And that, that I don't I don't necessarily know if that's a good or a bad thing a model for Cuba or not, but the the country needs, you know, to open up to the to the modern times. I mean, cause for sure. I mean, it's it's just it's inevitable. It has to happen over time. Yeah. Uh, politics, you know, is a big part of it. Let's just you know say it that way. Yeah. Um, in Vietnam, there was no politics about allowing Vietnam to just be on their own. It was just like yeah. okay, let them do their thing. They're now the country they want to be. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's it is you know, you know culturally from a arts and culture standpoint, you know, there's nothing I would love more than to go to Cuba and show my film and participate with them. And you know, I'm friends with a lot of Cuban filmmakers who've left Cuba, um, mm-hmm. and are still free to go back and forth. And so, 
you know, we talk a lot about it and it's something that we all look forward to doing hopefully in the near future. Yeah. Is that something that are you able because you're, you're, I mean, your parents left, but you weren't born there. No. So I am U.S. born and bred and basically considered completely a U.S. citizen. I have no, from the government standpoint in Cuba, I have no ties to them because I don't have a passport. I don't, you know, mm -hmm. I can't apply for one. Um, you know, I think there's something I would have to move there for an uncertain amount of time. And, right. You know, so there, there is that. But as an American, are you, are, I don't know how the rule, the laws are right now with going traveling. Are you? I, I'd honestly have to check because it's, you know, like you said, it's flip-flopped a lot in the last few years. And, and yeah. I know, I know from speaking to someone in production who wanted to do some productions down there that it's become very, very difficult if you're an American. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's unfortunate. So what? So you're looking for a distributor now for it? Yeah, we're looking for a distributor now. We have some very good offers on the table, and hopefully it'll be available very soon. Okay, excellent. Yeah. And then you're you're working on a new film now, correct? There were two different titles, so I'm not sure what it's called. Yeah, one is called Stay Safe. Uh, mm -hmm. So that film is right now we're in pre-production, uh, kind of soft pre-production, as they say. And so we are kind of doing the final casting. Uh, we're going to start location scouting very, very soon and hopefully be filming some point in the summer. Okay. Yeah. All right. And there was another one you said? Yeah, there's another film that I wrote, uh, Stay Safe, I did not write. And the one I wrote is called Open House, and it's a thriller set in the real estate market that I'm hopefully going to be directing in early 2022. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, how are you staying busy during, during all this? Have you directed commercials or done any other work? Yeah, I've been directing a lot of branded content, some commercials. I have a commercial next week and, uh, it's, it's kept me busy, you know, and doing some rewrites as well on material, you know, either mine or someone else's. Again, I love writing. Writing is one of the yeah. things that gets me up in the morning. I love doing it. And, you know, and then suddenly the day starts landing on you and production and <laughs> things that yeah. that sometimes you don't have any control over or very little control. You have to kind of deal with those. And, you know, uh, that's just the job of a director. At the end of the yeah. Day. How, how have you found um, we're, we're finally getting into an era, a time where more multicultural voices and more, you know, uh, more voices that instead of just, you know, white guys um are being or being you know al allowed to make films um how have you found are you do you feel like you're in you're you've started your career in, in more of the right time than, than perhaps others Listen, i i <laughs> i would hope so i mean you know i i waited quite a long time to do my first feature uh i had a couple opportunities in the past i just didn't think they were right and uh you know i hope with I hope right now with the advent of, you know, more minority stories being told uh, by the minority filmmakers themselves, that I think is an important uh, difference. You know, it's not that Hollywood hasn't wanted to tell minority stories or stories about people of color in the past. We all know that that's not true. They've There's been, you know, Oscar winners about that. Uh, Moonlight being one of the most recent. But what the difference is that now what is in the forefront is that the minority filmmakers should be the people telling those stories mm -hmm. and that, you know, more people of color are also green lighting the projects because the big thing is not whether there has been enough or sufficient amount of people of color behind the camera as directors, writers, uh, even producers, but that there's 
studio executives and network executives willing to green light these projects. And so that's been a big part of the shift as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm just hoping to keep doing it, man. I just want, I just want to go. I, I'd love to have yeah. a story. I, like, you know, I want to catch up to Soderbergh if, if possible one day. Yeah, yeah. You know, the man well, doesn't how, stop. How, how do you, do you feel that, um, that, that you would, which, I guess, which would you prefer? Would you prefer to just keep working and writing the stories, uh, writing any story you want, not based on anything necessarily that, you know, uh, culturally or anything, just, you know, like locked in is not a, uh, specifically, you know, cultural, uh, cast or anything. It's, it's, you know, kind of all, all over the place. Um, do you, do you feel like that's something you want to get into telling stories that like your documentary where, um, you're telling stories about from your viewpoint as a Cuban American, or do you want to be able to just go back and forth and do whatever you want, you know, as you, as you're able to, you know, that's a great question. And I've, I have given thought to that. I mean, I would love to adhere to the strategy of one for me, one for them, you know, um, Christopher Nolan, Soderbergh, you know, these, these guys have all been able to do stuff that have been able to do films and even TV shows that, uh, in the case of Soderbergh, that have been something personally relevant to them. Uh, in the case, I just think of Nolan with Dunkirk, you know, he couldn't have done Dunkirk without having done Dark Knight. Right. And Dark Knight earned him the ability to tell a very unknown, somewhat limited in scope story that still was a success and honestly for me is a masterpiece. Um, but he was at the height of his powers when he did it. He was able to get a film done the way he wanted to do it and tell a very personal story about this one time, you know, uh, event in British war history. Yeah. And similar to that, I want to tell stories that are Hispanic and Latino in nature, but I also look at it in a sense that there's, uh, there's stories that I've written that I'm like, anybody could be cast in this. But I do realize that now it is my responsibility as a filmmaker of color that I should be pushing that agenda so that the actors also are getting those opportunities that I've been given now too. Right, so right. I think it's, you know, best person for the job wins. And that's always been my approach. Excellent, excellent. Um, I'm trying to think of a final question here. <laughs> I, I guess what what drives you the most uh, in in your career? What I mean, you know, what was where were you at when you first realized you loved films enough to want to you know make them or be involved in filmmaking? What, what TV commercials, movies, however the shape ended up, you know, would take to what drives you now? How, you know, how can you describe the person you started as to the person that you are now and what motivates you today? Well, that's a great question. I mean, what motivates me today is just telling a personal story and a personal story can be a genre film. I don't mm -hmm. subscribe to the fact that genre films can't be personal and told from a personal viewpoint. I think of, story and character together uh, a lot of times I'll think of a character but I don't know what the story is and sometimes I start with just a location and my brain just starts going you know even as a kid I would listen to music and the visuals would just come to me and I was very young right. I didn't put writing and visuals together it didn't it that, that world didn't exist for me mm. and so I started off as a poet 
I was writing poems when I was a young kid, probably like 11, 12 years old. I was doing short stories that would scare the hell out of my mom. And but what was funny was even if they did have a, let's say, horror or suspense element to them, they were told from a very specific cultural side, which was me. And it was only a story that I could tell because it was something I experienced. And so I've always had the audience in mind. I always keep the audience in mind. It's something that's very important to me um, because I want as many people to see them as possible. Now, certain stories don't fit that genre. um, And I recognize that, but I definitely have more stories that are in the kind of audience appealed genre films than I do that are just kind of, let's say a straight up drama, but I do have a couple of those up the sleeve, ready to go. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, I, I thank you, Carlos, for taking the time to talk to me today. I, I wish you good luck on Locked In and um, finding distributor for your documentary about uh, Cuban child refugees and every everything else you got going on. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again down the line. Thanks, Brad. I really appreciate the time, man. You took a lot of time to ask me the right questions. So I appreciate, oh, I appreciate it. No, I, 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 this, I, I love doing this. I love talking to new people and, and you, you had good answers. I wasn't pulling teeth or anything. So I, I appreciate that too. <laughs> Let's do it for the next one too. All right, man. Uh, good luck <laughs> to you and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Appreciate right, it. Take care. Bye. Bye.